0: Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? The plans to reopen
1: the country are close to being finalised.
0: And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years, And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more, and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. I'm delighted to be joined today by James Timpson, someone who's spoken at the RSA before, who I have enormous respect for. James, before we start, just tell us who you are. So my
1: name's James Timpson, and I live near Chester. And our business, which is a family business, which I run, is a retail business. And we've got 2,100 little shops called Timpson and Johnsons are cleaners and Max Spielman and Snappy Saps and things like that. And I'm also really interested in prisons and justice and disadvantaged people.
0: Yes, we must get onto to that prison's point later on. But before I ask you the question that we ask everybody in this series, how is the crisis for you? what are your own circumstances?
1: I think it's a really strange time, and I'm getting used to it as every day goes by, because knowing that I think we've got, say, six weeks to go now, it's very different from when we had no idea. So I'm reading a lot, I'm learning a lot, but I'd say, I think it's stressful because I'm worried about the business. I'm worried about the people I work with. But on the other hand, it's also joyous because I'm at home with my family. Our kids spend a lot of time away because they're at university and we have lots of meals together and walks together and time to laugh and to tell stories. But it is a sort of an enforced situation an unnatural situation, but one that When I'm working, it's difficult. And when I'm not working, it's great.
0: You have to work, don't you, to exercise the imagination. If you're fortunate enough, you know, I'm in a reasonably nice house. I've got little front garden and my daughter's here. And you have to continually remind yourself that just down the road, there is a hospital going through an incredibly difficult time, that there are people losing loved ones, and also that if you're not well off, if you're in an overcrowded accommodation, there isn't a garden, you're very worried about your debts. It feels completely different.
1: Yeah, very, very different. And, you know, I do worry about the people who, in a you know, small flat with lots of kids, what are they going to do? They've got to feed the kids, they've got to entertain them, trying to school them. It's very difficult. You know, We're in a really wonderful area, we've got really nice gardens, And, you know, it's wonderful to be at home because I spend so much time away, but it's
0: not easy for people. So much I want to get into with you, but I'm going to start with the, the question we ask everybody, which is, James Timpson, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic?
1: The world will change because it has to. And it's a good thing that it does change. I think people want it to change. I think people will Feel differently about the role of the state. I think people will feel differently about the role of communities. I think people will feel differently about families and about the people that they actually want to get in touch with, the people who they want to care for. And I think people will look back at this time as one as a, sort of a scary time. People have lost loved ones. I've had a colleague who's lost both his mother and his grandmother in the last two days, but also a period where maybe this is an opportunity for us to draw a line and to say we're going to do things differently from here on.
0: Well, so let's explore some elements of that. One of the high points for me of the last few weeks was watching the video that your workers recorded, I think spontaneously for you, just to thank you for the way in which you were looking after them.
1: This is just a quick thank you to James Timson and all the family. Thank you so much for looking after us whilst all this is going on.
0: So do you think that this distinction between good business, responsible business and bad business is one that's going to be drawn more sharply as a consequence of this crisis?
1: I think what's been clear is that those businesses that haven't looked after their people and their customers have been exposed in a pretty brutal way very quickly. So what we decided to do, even before we knew about the furlough scheme and any other government support, is to pay our colleagues in full all the way through the crisis, however long it took, and I did that without even working out the sums of how much it would cost us because I just felt it was the right thing to do for them. And I know so many of my colleagues personally, and I know a lot of them don't have much spare money. And if they did take a 20% pay cut, that would leave them in serious financial difficulty. So I to do that. I also wanted to make sure we communicated with everybody really well. So there's a number of things that we've done well that have really helped people and given comfort knowing that the job's going to be there when they get back. But companies have a massive role, not just to support their colleagues, but also to support the whole country, because we've got to provide services for people when this is all over. So we need to make sure we run our businesses in a way when we're all in hibernation like we are now. That means that when we do reopen, we can offer a really good service and give people what they need. The country can't just stop. It's got to open up and get back to where we were before. And you've got to run your businesses well by looking after your people, I believe, to do that.
0: Both those attitudes that you've described, which is seeing your people as an asset, but also thinking medium and long term, thinking about how you invest in a set of relationships for the long term. They aren't attitudes that we always see from business, are they? Not at all. I mean, one of the things
1: that really surprised me when this crisis happened is how so many companies just thought about what was going to happen to their Bank balance in the next four weeks, not about what's going to happen to their bank balance in the next four years. And my view is, is, you've got to run a business with a long term view. It's been really interesting to see how this crisis has developed and the time it's taken for businesses to realize all the different things you need to think of and plan for when we come out of it. Because some just reacted by just cutting everything and getting rid of people and, and going in with just the, the financial viewpoint. But actually, People are starting to realize that there's more than that, and they've got to look at the emotional content of their business and what they're doing to support people as well, because that's just
0: as important. Is there any danger that the reverse lesson is the one that's learned? I mean, if you were a company, for example, that had all its staff on zero hours contracts at the beginning of this, then you were able to divest yourself of your wage bill. You know, pretty much overnight. So is there a danger that people come out this going, oh, well, we're in an even more volatile world, so therefore we need to externalise our risks even more, which is really a euphemism for we need to push our risks onto the shoulders of our workers?
1: Yeah, I do think it is a risk. But if you're a business that has lots of zero-hour contracts, then it's going to take you longer, in my view, to get back up and running and offer a really good service to your customers, because you're going to have to recruit people who've got no skills, no experience, because maybe those people who you've let go have gone elsewhere. Um, so, I think companies have to, and organisations have to think really hard on how they are treating people now during the crisis and the hibernation period and how that reflects on the type of business they are
0: when we're through this. So, the crisis is shining a light on the values and instincts of business, but you're also incredibly well known for the role that you've played in relation to prison reform and in particular rehabilitation. I think, what, is it 10% of your staff are former offenders? Am I right in saying that? No,
1: that's right. Yeah, we've got 650 colleagues who, I think the phrase is now, have prison
0: experience. Are you concerned about what's happening in our prisons at the moment? I mean, this was a big story in the States as well, and some prisoners have been released. Do you think we're managing this effectively in relation to the prison population?
1: I think it's a massive problem. We need to release far more prisoners. I think the government announced that we're going to release 4,000, but I think only about 60 or 70 have been released, or maybe slightly more than that now. But we've got so many people in in double cells, in prisons that are already overcrowded, with far fewer prison officers working there because they're ill or self-isolating. It's been on these cruise ships that's been going around where everyone's been getting the virus, but this cruise ship doesn't go anywhere. And the men and women in the cells are locked up for 23 hours a day, can't see their families. I mean, there have been some good things that have happened, like the number of phones have been made available so people can phone families and stuff. But it's really difficult for lots of people in prisons, but also their families. And so, yeah, I'm really worried about it. And also, obviously, with this crisis happening, we can't go into prisons and recruit and train people. There's like lots of areas of society that are having a difficult time, but in prison, it's right at the pinnacle of it. And I do worry of how they're going to cope
0: the state of our prisons before this crisis was lamentable and, if anything, deteriorating. Do you hold out any hope that the way our consciousness has been raised slightly more during this crisis about how it feels for other people in other circumstances might add a bit of impetus to the prison reform movement?
1: I really hope it does. I mean, it's interesting that crime has gone down, I think, 25% in the last month. So that means, ironically, there's going to be fewer people in prison. But my worry is really for the longer term that what kind of society do we want? And in this crisis, you know, there's been a huge amount of goodwill. There's been a real change in the way people feel about public services. And I just hope that moves into the justice world as well, where we understand that that people are in prison because they fail society, but also society has a role to help them because they've often been involved in their failure in the first place. So I think maybe what would be a really positive thing to come out of this is that we realise that there are people in all parts of our society, in care homes, in hospitals, in lots of different areas, that need help. And just because they're in prison doesn't mean they can't get the help and they shouldn't get the help.
0: The way we think about change at the RSA in terms of the crisis, James, is to say that the crisis is more likely to lead to change when three conditions apply. Firstly, that there was already grounds for change and a demand for change, capacity for change before the crisis. Second, the crisis reinforces that demand. And then the third element is when you come out of the crisis for that short period of time when people really say they want change. We're releasing a poll this week saying that only 13% of people want things to go back to how they were before. But in that brief period, you've got to have proposals, ideas, innovations ready to take advantage of that. So in terms of the reform agenda, do you think there are ideas which are ready to be taken forward if there is a, a period of time where people are more willing to think imaginatively?
1: As a country, we're not short of really good ideas. But I think we do have an opportunity, as you say, because the government has proven over the last few weeks that it can make really fast decisions. They've proven that they can trust companies and individuals and charities to come up with ideas and get on with it without having to jump through loads and loads of hoops. But there are so many simple, straightforward ideas that we should just back now and give it a go whilst we're in this culture of experimenting and trying things because, in my view, if we don't get the will behind it now, it'll probably be lost. So, let me give you one example. I think that the government should have a national insurance holiday for companies who recruit not just young people, but also people who've left the military, which they've just introduced, but also long-term unemployed people, disabled people, ex-offenders, and those groups that find it very difficult to get a job. That's a small thing, but I think it will just change the way companies behave. One of the things I would also love is for the government to say that businesses should have 1% of their company coming from disadvantaged groups. But that means that we can start the process of changing the way the country works.
0: I also think that what goes on in prisons is an opportunity. I mean, if giving prisoners mobile phones and letting them phone their families does not lead to the end of the world, then, you know, maybe it could be carried on. It's not as if prisoners aren't able to get hold of mobile phones anyway. Much better that you do it in a regulated way, which is safe, than you carry on with mobile phones being part of the kind of black market of prisons. Yeah.
1: And I mean, also, when you go back to the the core problem with prisons, it's just there's too many people there. There are people going to prison for too long, and there are too many people going to prison in the first place. And you can look at all of our European neighbours, apart from Turkey, we're locking up way, way more people. And the thing that really scares me is the amount of young people going to prison for a really long time. They go in as boys and come out as men with no clue how to live in society. So I think there's a lot that can be done. But like you say, these little ideas, the innovation that we're now getting because the government is open to it, it's fantastic. And we really need to take advantage of it and get so many of these ideas through and working I remember reading about innovation in World War One was more than any other time in the last thousand years, because the country was forced to do it. And we're now being forced to make these quick decisions and innovate because of the virus. And maybe that could be used in other parts of society too.
0: Can we draw back again and go back to business, but this time on a kind of global scale? I mean, one of the conversations I have had recurrently over recent years has been One which has contrasted the fact that many large corporations, including actually financial institutions, are starting to talk about long term issues. They're starting to talk about the need to do something about climate change. They're starting to talk about the need to have an economy which feels like it benefits more people. And I've heard often it said that actually business leaders, some business leaders, have become easier to talk to about these kinds of issues than politicians who seem to be completely obsessed in the kind of short term and to any cases speaking in a very kind of rather populist way. Do do you think this could be a crisis as we come out of it where globally the business community could be at the vanguard of calling for some of the deeper changes that we need?
1: I do and I, I think it's already happening. I think business leaders are good at making things happen And also, we recognize that it's not just our customers that are saying that they want zero plastic, for example, in our business, it's our colleagues too. And if you put all that together, it's just an obvious decision. And businesses, I think, are in a really good position to get things moving and to really be a key part of this change because we're good at making things happen. We are quick, we understand how all the various parts of the market works to make these things happen. Whereas politicians, from my experience, a lot of them aren't always the best at understanding how to get things done. And some business people are good at getting things done quickly. And that's what we want.
0: People talk about this concept of financialization. and, And another thing that I've kind of noticed in my conversations with business leaders is the way in which companies that you think are about making stuff, doing stuff. And it turns out that they spend an enormous amount of their energy actually in the kind of business of financial arbitrage. You look at the way that car companies have turned primarily into financing vehicles, for example. Is there something here about how we get back to a world where finance is actually there to improve what we do materially in the world rather than to be almost a kind of distraction from what we should be caring about?
1: Yeah, I remember a guy I met years ago, he'd just been asked to go on the main board at Ford in Detroit. And I said, oh, wow, what, you know, what, what were the board meetings like? He said, well, it took two board meetings to actually people talking about making cars. It's all about finance. Which yeah. I thought you know, it was, was a business about making great cars. And you know, I worry what's going to happen in six months' time when lots of hedge funds and financial institutions are going to announce their results. Because I think some people have made an absolute fortune out of this crisis because they understand how the markets work, but you know maybe we can get back to the fact that you know baking bread at home and knitting and making and doing things and riding your bike and being part of sort of community groups is just as important as it is working and making money in the financial sectors. Because I think you know I, I do think there is an argument that at a time like this we're going to need a really strong financial system, but I think the government which for me, I think has done a really good job so far in this crisis with the various support mechanisms. I think the government has just as important a role to help the country come through this, but also guide us so we do it in the right way.
0: Yes, because of course, after the financial crisis, there was great hope that in order to get the economy moving, we'd see big investment in infrastructure. And actually, what we saw was QE, which may have been necessary, but it led to a kind of asset bubble. So somehow this time, if governments are going to invest to rebuild the economy, they need to be investing in the real economy, don't they?
1: Yeah, they do. I mean, I think, you know, big infrastructure projects important. I think for every pound you spend on infrastructure, you get £2.40 back. But the thing the government needs to understand is that this is a cash flow crisis for business. This is all about cash. It's not about the fact that the businesses are now rubbish businesses, the fact that people don't no longer want to go to a bar or a restaurant because they will do. It's about how businesses can manage their cash flow over the next two years. And whilst no one has got a clue when business is going to return to normal, I suspect it will be three years, maybe two years, but probably three years. It's going to be very difficult for financial institutions, for government, for individuals to know how to best support the economy and society over the next three years is going to be really difficult. And I think what they're going to have to do is to be flexible and put money into infrastructure, to invest money in some ways, speculatively, in the way they've been doing over the last few weeks in the NHS and, and in all the other areas that they need to. But I agree with you that we're going to have four or five million unemployed people. The government need to start spending money on Things that are going to give people jobs.
0: Yes, because I remember after the last crisis, that after the financial meltdown, the next kind of big scandal, which rolled on for about 18 months, was that even though the QE process had begun, so little of the money that was going into financial institutions, into banks, was getting down to small business. So we, as you say, we can't wait 18 months this time.
1: No. And with all the PPI money that has been flowing through, I think that's virtually just drying up now, that had a major boost. So many of my colleagues could afford to buy a car, to buy a sofa, to get the house done up based on PPI money that came through from the financial institutions. And that has now dried up. And I would argue that for a lot of my colleagues, that was the most important thing that's got them through the last few years rather than QE and all the other sort of factors that the government have been doing. So how can they find another way to get money like that into people's
0: pockets? Look, it's been fantastic talking to you, getting your insights on running a business, on prisons and on the role the business has to play in the world. I can't resist one final question, James, which is that uh, in this time that we've got at home, even though when you're, you're someone as busy as you, it is also a time for learning new skills, people baking bread and trying to learn how to sing and play the guitar at the same time. Have you got any personal skills or bits of development that you've, you've managed to do over the last few weeks?
1: Well, as a family, we've had lots of ideas at the beginning of this to do home brewing, to walk on every footpath in our area. But the only thing I've managed to do is we've been doing the Nike fitness app every day. So I'm determined to get fit, even though we've got lots of things to do, we're getting fit. So I'm an expert on the Nike fitness app, which I think is fantastic.
0: Well, they'll be very grateful for the advert you've given them. Uh, James, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please tell someone about it and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.